It has been my privilege to be associated with uh, West Coast Baptist College since uh, the year 2002. And, and I thank God for that. I remember a few years ago, I preached a sermon here that I preached several places, <clears throat> but the first time was here. And the name of the sermon, what would keep you from coming to Japan? And uh, I got that a letter from Donald Mobley when I was pastoring in Providence, Kentucky. There were 3,500 people in Providence, Kentucky. There were two other Southern Baptist churches. Uh, there were Methodist churches, Presbyterian church, and everything. And I got the letter from Donald Mobley, and he had read an article I'd written. He said, I don't know anything about you. I don't know your age. I don't, I don't know your, your educational attainment. I know nothing about you. But I couldn't help but think whoever wrote that article has a heart for mission. And at the end of the thing, he said, we're in Akita, Japan. There are 3.5 million people here. My wife and I are the only witness in this area. And then he wrote, what would keep you from coming to Japan? <laughs> I couldn't find a reason, amen. Uh, anyway, three years after that, my wife and I, we, we went to Japan. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that I, you know, I, I was very comfortable in Providence, Kentucky, but, but I'm so glad that God, Holy Spirit dealt with me and made me very uncomfortable going to Japan. They showed me a Japanese Bible. There was nothing in the Bible that resembled a word. And all I could think of was, dear Lord, I'm from Kentucky. We have a hard time with English. You expect me to learn a language like that? <clears throat> but we went to Japan. I, I was thinking when we went, we spent our whole life in Japan. And uh, I, I remember when I committed my life to be a preacher, uh, Thanksgiving night, 1954. And I don't know why in the world Black Oak Baptist Church had a service on Thanksgiving night. We'd all eaten so much turkey, we were all sleepy anyway, okay? But we did, and that's the night I committed my life to be a preacher. Young ladies, three weeks after that, my wife went forward in a service. This is her commitment. Please pray for me. Since God has called on to be a preacher, please pray that I'll be the best wife I can possibly be so he can be all that he needs to be. Uh, commitment. Yesterday, you heard this story of Stephen Terrell. By the way, Dr. Rasmussen taught him when he was in college. He was in mission conferences with uh, several of us that are here, here tonight. Uh, he was martyred in Baghdad. I wonder there's anybody who would take the place of Brother Stephen. I got news this morning that uh, Tom Pace went to heaven last night. Tom went to Peru in, in 1967, and he and his wife Carolyn and their children spent 55 years in Peru. He graduated from Eternal College with a degree in cinema. And he produced Christian videos that they showed all over Peru. 
he worked in the Andes Mountain, and he was so effective that uh, the city where he was working tried to get him to run for the they tried to get him to be the mayor. They, they wanted him to be the mayor. Thank God he rejected that, amen. But then he went to Lima and started an unbelievably great work. And I wonder, who's going to take the place of Tom Pace? I read the other day, and we saw the video of Laverne Rogers, who spent 74 years in Japan. He died a few days ago. Laverne was a good friend of mine. I remember the story. He put his shoes on the platform one day, and he said, now, you know, I'm, I'm 94 years old. I'm dying. But I wonder who will take my place. That story could be told over and over and over again. I remember less than 20 years ago when 10 to 12 percent of the graduates from Bible colleges like uh, West Coast Baptist College, uh, Golden State, Crown College, Pensacola, and so forth, about 12 percent of the graduating classes were going to the the mission field. Last year, 3% went. Wow. Wonder why. Evidently, God quit calling people, huh? No. Listen to one of the last texts from Stephen Troll. The question is not, have you heard the call? But will you obey the command. Let me read that again. The question is not, have you heard the call, but will you obey the command? Isaiah saw the great vision. He realized he was a sinner and that he lived among sinner people. He was cleansed. And, and then he said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? By the way, that's rather generic, amen? He didn't say, Isaiah, could I send you? Isaiah, will you go for it? No, no. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here's my sister, Lord, send her. That's what a lot of West Coast students are saying. That's what Bible students are. There's a lot more women that are willing to go to the mission field than there are red-blooded American men. Where are the men today that would say, by the way, I'm not against women going. Thank God history is filled with great women missionaries. But we need church planters. We need people to go and learn the language. We need people to go and adjust to the culture. We need people that will go and do whatever God would have them to do. Here am I. Send me. I was with a young pastor few years ago, he kept saying, I'd give anything to be a missionary. I'd really like to be a missionary. And I heard it so many times. We was eating lunch one day, and he started again. I said, why don't you just resign your church and uh, pick you out a mission field that really needs missionaries. And by the way, that's not hard to do. And uh, you go over there and, and get some people saved and start some churches and train some leaders and even if God didn't call you, I believe he would forgive you. Amen. I wouldn't doubt if I'm not talking to hundreds of young men today 
If you would say like Isaiah, Lord, I volunteer. Here am I. Send me. I think it was Francis Chan that made the statement. My greatest fear is not that I will fail. My greatest fear is that I will succeed in that which does not matter. You're going to hear a great message in a few minutes from Brother Sam Hutchins. Thank God for young men. Amen. I mean, I'm not against old people, but thank God for young men too. But uh, think about it. What are you planning to do? What are you planning to do that somebody else couldn't do if you would volunteer to go to some of the unevangelized places of the world? Someone asked me last night, Brother says, is there a real need in Japan? And I said, are you kidding? There are cities of 500,000 people that do not have one gospel witness. Don't wait for God to speak out of the sky and say, hey, I, I want you to go. No. Listen to the command. Go you into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Borden said at the end of his life, no regrets. Now, I've been in the ministry for 68 years. I've been in full-time missions 56 years. And uh, I'm 89 years old. And everywhere I go, people say, now, Brother says, we don't want you to die on our watch. And I tell them, I got to die on somebody's watch, amen. <laughs> but if I had it to do all over again, Thank God I'd do it. Dr. Bob Hughes was a great missionary in the Philippines. He had cancer. He came to the States and he spoke one day in a Bible college. Listen carefully. And a very shy, skinny little man in the college heard the message. Dr. Hughes said, I cannot go back. I cannot go back to the Philippines. Who will go for me? That little man weighing about 120 pounds sitting in that college came to an altar and he said, I'll go to the Philippines. He has been there for over 40 years. He has started over 2,000 independent Baptist churches. His name is Rick Martin, and it all began in a moment like this. And one day, you will remember hearing Dr. Don Sisk say, who will replace us? And I hope that when that thought comes to your mind, that you're not turning a wrench or working at Walmart or chasing another girlfriend or switching to another college or chasing some silly dream. But I hope that when that comes to your mind, you'll have your hand to the plow and you'll be in the field and you'll be saying, I'll be that one. That's what this is about. Brother Hutchins, you come. We love Brother Hutchins. He's a graduate of West Coast. He 
served on our faculty, and he's now planting a church in a very unchurched country, and God is using him, and I know he wants to be a blessing to us, so let's listen to the Word of God this morning. Thank you, Pastor. Let's take our Bibles and go to 2 Kings chapter number 6 this morning, if you would. 2 Kings chapter number 6. To be able to preach in West Coast Baptist College Chapel is an unbelievable privilege for me. Uh, I, of course, am an alumni of West Coast, alumnus of West Coast, thankful for that. I am fiercely thankful to be an alumnus of West Coast Baptist College. I love this place. I love the people here. I love my pastor. I love Dr. R., Dr. Getch, Dr. Weaver, uh, Dr. Sisk. I love them all. And I'm telling you, you're in a good spot right now. You're in a, in a, in a wonderful place. And I hope you're, you're catching on to what's being said today. Uh, I hope you're hearing a pastor's heart and you're hearing the heart of some of these other men. I was sitting in your seat not too long ago. It's getting longer ago as we go. I graduated in 2011, so a little over 10 years ago now. But Brother Nathan was sitting there not too long ago, and Olivia West and the other West Coast grads, the Dyes, and uh, Ricky and Michelle and all the rest sitting in your spot not long ago. I hope you're dreaming a little bit today that maybe five, six years from now, you're at Lancaster Baptist Missions Conference as a missionary on deputation going somewhere. And I hope that's kind of taking root in your mind and your heart today and that the Lord's working in your heart. We're going to do something a little bit different with this passage of Scripture today. A lot of times a preacher will read a passage of Scripture and then he'll reset and kind of go back and start working through it. But I've got a a bit of a larger portion of Scripture I want to get through today. And so instead of reading through and then going back to the beginning, we're just going to kind of move through it slowly this morning over the course of the message, all right? And we're going to start by reading a couple of verses, and then we'll make some comments, and then we'll make uh, read a few more verses and make some more comments, and then a few more verses, and so on and so forth. And it's going to bring us to a point where we're going to make a, a very simple and yet very logical conclusion and application at the very end. I want to give you a little bit of context before we get into our first verse, which is going to be chapter 6 and verse 24, okay? So put your finger there and then listen for the context really quickly, and then we'll get right into verse number 24. The nation of Israel has long been divided into two nations. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, that's 10 of the 12 tribes, and those are led uh, by King Jehoram in this story, and that's the nation we're going to be focusing in on. The other two tribes became the southern kingdom, and they are not mentioned in this story. Throughout the history of these two nations, you find that the Bible gives individual commentary on each king. In the southern kingdom of Judah, every once in a while, there was a king about which the Bible says he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. But of the northern kingdom, you will not find that. The northern kingdom had a long line of just evil kings who stayed far from the Lord. Perhaps the one that we know the most of would be King Ahab. He was the worst one, we might say. And, of course, he, along with his wife Jezebel, were some of the most wicked rulers that perhaps the whole world has ever seen, much less the nation of Israel. Well, Jehoram, the man who is now the king of Israel, is the son of Ahab, right? What's the saying? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And so many times throughout the history of Israel, God would allow uh, some oppression or some, some judgment, some punishment to come against the nation in an effort to get their eyes back on him. And Israel's going through one of those moments in this passage. Their capital city has been besieged, surrounded by 
the Assyrian army. The Assyrians were their enemies, of course. And a siege is a pretty simple concept. I think you understand it. They surround the city, cut off the supply lines. Nobody comes in, nobody gets out. And they kind of choke the city out. And the hope is, after a little bit of time, they'll either surrender uh, because they have no more goods, they have no more supplies, or they'll get so weak that then the, the armies can come in and they can take the city without much of a fight. So that's where we're at. We're in the city of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. They've been besieged by the Assyrians as we go into verse number 24 of 2 Kings chapter 6. And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it, until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver, and the fourth part of a cab of doves dung for five pieces of silver. In these first couple of verses, we see the condition of the land being described for us in the scriptures. The condition of the land. And there are two different things that these verses tell us. First of all, they tell us that Samaria was a place of desperation. It was a place of desperation. Look at verse 25. This great famine had brought the people to the point where they were willing to pay four score or 80 pieces of silver for a donkey's head. They were willing to pay five pieces of silver for the quarter part of a piece of dove's dung. Now that's mind boggling to me. We think inflation is bad in the United States right now. I mean, imagine getting to the point where you go to Walmart and they say it'll be a hundred bucks for a bit of cab or a bit of dove's dung. Now, I don't know exactly the exchange rate between silver then and dollars now, but I think we get the idea in looking at this just how badly things were going in Samaria. As we go through this story, I want to draw some parallels between what's happening in Samaria and what's happening in our world today. And just as we see a scene of desperation here in Samaria, so too in our world we see a scene of desperation as well. Now, it's not exactly the same as what they were facing, but it's similar in a lot of ways. I heard it put this way one time, that within the heart of every man and woman and boy and girl on this planet, there is a God-sized hole that only God can fill. And yet mankind attempts to fill that hole with anything but God. As we look at our nation, as we look at our world, we see a people that are desperate for something. They're not quite sure what it is, but they know they're desperate for something. They're looking for answers. In America, they look for answers in monetary gain. They look for answers in drugs, alcohol, immorality, very similar to the nation where I serve in New Zealand. Where Brother Fagali is at in the Middle East, they look for answers in religion, in Islam. They're hoping for answers and they're hoping for satisfaction in that. Just a few months ago, I was in the nation of Sri Lanka for a week. And in Sri Lanka, there are more Buddhists than any other country in Southeast Asia. And they're looking to Buddhism for the answers to their desperation. No matter where they are and no matter where they are looking, they are finding that they can't quite find something to satisfy that longing in their heart. I remember Tom Brady, the quarterback now of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And during the time of this interview, several years ago, of course, was with the Patriots. He had won three Super Bowls. He had been the MVP a few times, made millions of dollars, and he was being interviewed by Dan Rather. And Dan Rather looked at him, began to list off his accomplishments, and then he asked him, is there anything else that you want to accomplish in your career? And Tom kind of answered the question in a little bit of a, a different way. He said, yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe a couple of different things, but 
He said, I can't help but wonder, is this all there is to life? A man who has it all, a household name in this country, widely regarded now especially as the best quarterback of all time. And yet even Tom Brady would say, I'm still looking for something. It's a scene of desperation, and inevitably, this leads us to a scene of devastation. Look at verse 26. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord do not help thee, whence shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? And the king answered, or said unto her, What aileth thee? Now listen close. She answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him, and she hath hid her son. And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes. And he passed by upon the wall, and the people looked. And behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. The Bible says that sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. No matter how desperately this world tries to satisfy the longing that they have, devastation is always the outcome. They find themselves disappointed. Let down. Involved in things they never thought they'd be involved in. Doing things they never thought they would do. We look at the king of Israel, Jehoram, in verse 30. And he rents his clothes. He puts the sackcloth on. And I can't imagine what went through his mind. Perhaps he was most stunned by the fact that this mother wasn't so much grieving over the loss of her son... She was upset that the other woman had hid her son. And it's amazing where the desperate efforts of mankind to find something will take them. Now that's the condition of Samaria, but it is also the condition of our world today. And it's not getting any better. People are looking for answers. They're hoping for something, but... All they're finding is the devastation that sin brings. This is the condition of the land. Let's go down to chapter number 7 and verse number 3. We're going to switch, uh, switch or turn the page a little bit here. We're going to move just outside of the city. We're going to meet some lepers. And we're going to talk secondly about the conversation of these lepers. Verse number 3 of chapter 7. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate... And they said one to another, why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city. We shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us fall into the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. In these verses, we see that the lepers had a recognition of their condition. They look at each other and they say, what are we doing? Why sit we here until we die? As lepers, they were already ostracized from society. They had to remain outside of the gate. But they realized, hey, it's no better inside than it is outside. If we go into the city, we die there. If we stay here, we die here. 
They come to recognition that despite everybody's best efforts, the situation is just not getting any better. In the world today, it's true that in order for people to have uh, any hope of finding the satisfaction, finding the truth that they need, they need to come to recognition of their condition. As the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse number 10, there is none righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned, it says a few verses later in verse 23, and come short of the glory of God. We have to help people through the scriptures realize their condition. Because when they recognize their condition, we see then a reversal of their condition, starting in verse number 5. And they rose up in the twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it. And came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. This is an amazing part of the story. I wish I could have been there to see it happen. The Assyrians are sitting there. They're enjoying their evening meal. They're eating beans and weenies by the fire. You know, they're having a good night. Things are going well. The siege is, is underway. Things are turning around. They, they've even heard perhaps of how desperate people have become in Samaria. Surely they'd be going home soon. But as they're sitting there and enjoying the evening, one of them looks at the other and says, you hear something? And the other one looks at him and says, yeah, it kind of sounds like horses. And another one pipes up and says, yeah, I hear something too. I, I think I hear some chariots and Maybe even the voices of some soldiers. And with horror, they look at one another and they think, we don't know how, but Jehoram, he got word out to his, to his, uh, his allies, the Hittites and the Egyptians, and somehow or another, he's gotten word to them, and now they've come upon us, and they're coming to come to the aid of Israel. And so these guys, in a hurry... They were caught off guard. They stand up. They don't pick up anything. They run for their lives to get away from the incoming armies, except there was nobody. There's no army, no chariots, no horses. There's only God doing a work that only God could do. And isn't that the answer for our world as well? That in order to see a reversal of their condition, in order to find that which they are so desperately looking for, God had to do something that only God can do. But God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And these beggars are representative of people like you and I who were at one point lost in sin. We were at one point desperate for something. We were at one point subject to the devastation of sin. But at some point along the line, we found what God had done for us. And just like these lepers, 
we begin to enjoy those blessings of God. Verse number eight, they go into one tent. There's food, there's silver, there's gold, there's clothing, things that they have so desperately needed for so long. And they're enjoying all that God has done for them in this moment until we come to verse number nine, where we see thirdly and finally the conviction of the lepers. Verse number nine starts off a little strange. Then they said one to another, we do not well. Now, hold on a second. Just a few minutes prior to this, they were sitting outside of the city of Samaria, starving, no doubt their clothes in tatters, not a single coin to their name. And now their bellies are full. Now they're having a nice drink of water. Now they've got clothing and gold and silver more than probably anybody else in Samaria. And so it seems as though they are doing really well. So why are they saying we do not well? Well, let's look. We see they say, first of all, this day is a day of good tidings. They recognized the blessing that had been given to them. And I just want to pull over here for just a second. This isn't the main thrust of the message at all, but it's worth remembering that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then this day is a day of good tidings. I don't know how things are looking for you financially. Hey, I've been there and done that, by the way. I remember one particular semester in college getting down to 42 cents for four weeks, using other people's toothpaste and laundry cards and all the rest because... I didn't have any more money, but God always provided and took care. So you might be in that position right now, or you might be struggling with your grades, or you might be having relationship problems, or there might be other things. You might not be getting along with your roommates, or something else might be going on that makes you feel like things are not very good. But as long as you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this day is a day of good tidings. But in their recognition of their blessing there came a realization of their burden. This day is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. I don't know how it played out, but I kind of imagine that they're eating, and perhaps they're getting to that point, you might know what I'm talking about, where you've eaten so much that you're positive if you eat another bite, it's not going to be good. But it's so good that you just have to keep eating. And he's lifting, one, one of those lepers is lifting a fork full of food up to his mouth. And, oh, man, this is so good. I don't know if I could eat another bite. And he looks behind him in that moment. And he sees the city of Samaria. And he realizes that while his stomach is nice and full... And his thirst has been quenched. And his pockets have been filled. There's still people in Samaria selling a donkey's head for 80 pieces of silver. There's still people in Samaria at that moment who are trading off five pieces of silver for a little bit of dove's dung. Perhaps in the distance he can see King Jehoram on the wall, renting his clothes, putting on the sackcloth at the news that a mother has boiled her child just to feed her hunger. 
And he says, hey, fellas, fellas, hang on a second. This isn't good. (laughs) This day is a day of good tidings, but we haven't told anybody yet. So they say this in the end of verse 9. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now, therefore, come that we may go and tell the king's household. We got to go tell somebody. We, we can't keep this to ourselves. Can you imagine how selfish it would have been for these men to never go back to Samaria and tell them what they had found. And yet, here we sit at West Coast Baptist College. And we enter into one class and we eat and drink and carry thence all the wonderful information that we've learned and we go and hide it. And we enter into another class and we do the same. And here in a few weeks we'll go home after Thanksgiving and we'll spend time at home under our home pastors and we'll enjoy the season where we celebrate the birth of Christ and we'll take it home and hide it. And then next spring you'll come back and you'll go back into classes and then Easter and all the rest. And we've gotten really good at taking all the wonderful things, all the wonderful blessings that come with our salvation and our relationship with Christ. And we've gotten really good at taking it off to the corner and hiding it. But where are the West Coast Baptist College students that will look at one another and say, this isn't good. We can't keep this to ourselves. Come on, let's go tell somebody. Let's go tell somebody. Let's go find somebody who's still desperate, somebody who's still devastated, and let's tell them that God has provided a way. That's what Nathan is going to do in Portland. That's what the Dyes are going to do in Uganda and Olivia and Romania and Josh and Ruth are doing it in Ethiopia and all these other missionaries as well. Today, up in Las Vegas, a friend of mine who graduated from here, Greg Fryer, He's getting on an airplane. He's saying goodbye to his family today to get on an airplane and to fly to Auckland, New Zealand and start working as a missionary in New Zealand as well. There's a few of us who have said, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to keep it to ourselves. We're going to go ahead and get up and we're going to go and tell. Now, this doesn't start way off in the future when you finish graduating at West Coast. This starts right now. Because there's somebody at Walmart who needs to hear about it. There's somebody out on J8 and somebody over in Avenue P and all the rest who need to hear what you have. So where are the college students that are going to say, let's go and tell? College student, just like the lepers, if you would have to look at yourself and say, this day is a day of good tidings, but I've been holding my peace. Then we can come to no other conclusion than that which the lepers came to. We do not well. We just do not well. But let's not sit here and kick ourselves and say, man, I'm not doing well. Let's do what the lepers did. Now, i got to warn you. They got up, they went into the city, and you'd think because of how bad things were in Samaria, that the lepers would have received a hero's welcome. You'd think 
that everybody would have said, awesome, let's go, let's enjoy the camp of Samaria. But you read on, you find that that's actually not the case. The king of Israel, if you read on in chapter 7, he didn't trust them. He thought they might be lying, might be perhaps spies from Assyria. And and that's kind of the way it is. We're going to go out there, you're going to go and tell, and people are going to say, no, I don't believe it. It's not true. And you might get discouraged at that. I reckon the lepers got a little discouraged over that. But at the same time, how encouraging it must have been that some did come. And as you go out there and you go and tell, while many may say, I don't believe it, some will come. 